Well, good morning, church. Uh, I'm so pleased that you're going to be worshiping with us this morning uh, as we're working together through the quarantining of the coronavirus issue. And so this is going to be the way that we're going to have church for a while. And so uh, I thank God that we have the capability of doing church like this, and I thank God that you're interested enough to come in and worship with us as we do this. So uh, this is available now on Sunday morning, and I will be doing this every Sunday morning uh, throughout the hiatus until we can return to our regular worship format. So before we begin, I want to uh, open this message with a prayer and asking God to be with us and to anoint us. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for all that you've given us, for all that you've blessed us with. I thank you, Lord, that you have protect us, protected us even during this difficult time when there are so many health risks. Lord, I ask you that you reach out to our congregation and protect each and every one of them along with their extended families. Now, Lord, we bow before your throne and we ask you that you give us a message for today that touches our heart today through the Holy Spirit as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So this is part two of the message that I started uh, the last time we met, which was on good works. Uh, and when I used uh, good works part one, I focused on Romans as the format, as Paul used Romans to deliver that message to the church. Now, it's about three or four years later, as he's writing now to the Ephesians, uh, and he's got a slightly different perspective, but it's got great depth again, as we understand the nature of good works. And the nature of good works is critical to us uh, as we walk with Christ, because we have been created for the very purpose of being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so this becomes a critical uh, nature of our study, a critical nature of our salvation. And so I'd like you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, growing up, as I told you, my grandfather was both a missionary and a pastor. And whenever he would see me coming from around the age of 10 or all, uh, or thereabouts, he would always say to me, uh, Ephesians 2.10, what is it? Ephesians 2.10. And I, and I finally had to memorize it because he was always on top of me. But it really became the seminal uh, verse in his ministry. Uh, and it became a keystone for me of understanding why God had created me. And see, so many of us are faced with these questions by our children and our grandchildren. What is the purpose of my life? Why did God create me? Create me. And so instead of trying to knock ourselves out with all kinds of philosophical dissertations, God has distilled it in one verse. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that he hath before ordained. Um, and so this becomes uh, an important thing for us to study uh, and, and recognize this. And so Paul has spoken in Ephesians in that same chapter, uh, in the first verse, he talked about the nature of creation uh, and this, that God was effectively recreating us as he raised us from the dead. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions 
uh, and sins. And so you see that moving on further down in that chapter, verse 5, it says there, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And so you see the whole nature of, of our recreation as Christians uh, within the body of Christ, that God has done this from the beginning, and it is part of the creative process, effectively what he determined at the time that he created the world. And it is critical as he saves us and we become saved Christians that this becomes a part of our, our operation. Look, if you would, also uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't have the slides like I do in church, so it's going to take me a little longer. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse uh, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. There it is. We are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away, the new has come. We are entirely uh, new individuals. The old has disappeared. We are new cre- creatures. And as new create creatures, we are now defined by our good works as God has done that for us. And so he determines to pour all these blessings into our life as we step out and walk within his will for the purpose for which he has saved us. Uh, and so the key understanding here for you is this. Not everyone who says they are saved are truly saved. Uh, we often get confused on that. Many, many Christians confuse making a decision to accept Christ with genuine salvation. And, and, and I would say to you, I would caution you that there's a difference between head salvation and heart salvation. And so there are many people who will uh, indicate that they, they've accepted Jesus Christ and it becomes an intellectual acceptance. But it's only when you are fully involved in accepting Christ with your heart and your soul and your entire body that you are then genuinely saved. And that's when you become a new creature. And you know, the, the uh, Old Testament spoke about that kind of issue as well in Ezekiel chapter 36 uh, in verses 26 to 27, God says there in that passage that he, I will exchange your, uh, your heart of stone. I will exchange your heart of stone uh, for a heart of flesh, meaning that we are born with a heart of stone. We are born with hardness. We don't reach out in love. We don't care about other people. We only care about ourselves. And so at the time that we're sa- saved, God recreates even our heart. So if there's no change in heart, Uh, We need to question whether we have been created anew in Christ Jesus. Now, the second major point in Ephesians 2.10 is that genuine salvation inevitably results in a life of good works. And let me repeat that. Genuine salvation inevitably results in a life of good works. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for our good works. That's a critical understanding that you need to have. These two statements make all of the difference in the world. Good works are the evidence of our salvation, not the cause of our salvation. If there are no good works, if there is no change of heart to follow salvation, then it should be questioned truly whether 
that individual uh, is truly safe. Now, Jesus taught that very plainly in, in warning about false prophets. Turn with me, if you would, uh, to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Well, there's Jesus, again, making a statement that uh, is so profound and yet so simple. Uh, he is telling us that one of the ways that we have the litmus test about the kind of people that even seem to be speaking about spiritual things is whether their life has fruit. Do they bear good fruit? Or is it merely someone who's mouthing words that is not uh, evident in their life? Because if, in fact, I come to you and I speak about Jesus Christ, then my life should be consistent with that kind of preaching. Uh, and so when someone doesn't have them, that in their life, and you know, we see so much evidence of this, even in terms of so-called televangelists, people that are in it for the money, uh, and later on we find that there's been so many scandals involving these people. Well, the question really should have been answered before that, because if we had delved into their lives, we wouldn't have seen good fruit. It would, it would have been evident. And so that becomes the same, the same essence of understanding this. Uh, and so God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Uh, and furthermore, he, he uh, tells us that Christ gave himself up to redeem us from every lawless deed. Uh, and so the book of James makes this same point in, in a very profound way. If you would turn uh, to James uh, and look at James chapter 2. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is, if it is not accomplished by actions, is dead. And so you see that aspect of understanding that the very nature of our salvation requires us to step out in faith and do good works. There's no disconnect. One is inextricably linked to the other. Uh, if a person claims to have faith, claims to be a Christian, claims to be saved, but there is no resulting works from that salvation, then the claim truly is suspect. Now, what are these good works for which we have been created? Because we've talked about these good works. Now, what's the nature of them? Generically, what's the nature of them? And Spurgeon, that great English preacher, uh, spoke at length about that. And he summarized them uh, as follows. He calls them works of obedience, works of love, works of faith, and acts of common life. All right? And so you see that, that division there that he has set up. So what is works of obedience? By that he means obeying 
the commands of the scripture. Uh, obeying, meaning that, that we follow what God wants in our lives, that we are walking in a path of righteousness, uh, that we are not willfully violating the commands of life. That's, first of all, the first nature of good works. All right? Uh, secondly, uh, what is the works of love that he's talking about there? Well, the works of love include both love of God uh, and love for our fellow man, loving our neighbor as ourselves. All of that with an eye to God's glory. Meaning what? Meaning we do these works not because we want praise for ourselves, but we bow our face, we put our face in the dust, and as we do these works, we glorify God. It is all for God. It is everything that we do is for him. All of the talents, all of the gifts, everything that we have in our life, we pour out towards glorifying our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and God, our Father, in every way. And so further, works of faith, uh, which was another division that he referred to, refers to all that we do uh, in reliance upon God and his promises. We walk in faith. Walking in faith is effectively part of understanding the good works that we are designed for. And then he calls something by acts of common life. By acts of common life. What did he mean there? Well, he meant that whatever we do, whether it is at home or at work or traveling or even in a sickbed, that everything we do is all for the glory of God. And this is important because what it means is that, in, that the entire focus of our lives should be lived with a God focus, not a me focus, but a God focus designed to please him. This is, this is the genuine salvation, uh, really, that involves a new creation that is entirely God's and made for good works. Now, you can understand why this is a new creation, because nothing in the way that defines humanity would have any works that we do uh, glorifying somebody else. Everything that this world does, and, and, and there are many people that do a lot of good things. They're not the good works designed by God, but they may be good works designed as, as our, our world designs. You know, whether people give money to a hospital or to a university, and you notice that whenever that takes place, what do you see? The John Garippa Pavilion. All right, the John Garippa Pavilion, and I'm just using that as an example. But the point is, is this, we do it to self-glorify. That's why we do it. And God is not interested in that. God is rather interested in you putting your face down in the dirt and doing whatever you do to glorify God. It's not about us, it's about him. And so there's a third point made by Paul in Ephesians, and that is that God prepared these works for us before we were saved. Before we were saved, according to these, this word in Ephesians, God prepared these good works for us. Well, let's drill down on what that means. God's sovereign plan uh, for us does not stop with salvation. That's the first step. But it includes a life of godliness and leading to final glorification. If you have your Bible, turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. beginning with verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed 
to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many other brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So I want to really drill down on this uh, because sometimes I hear people say to me, well, uh, John, uh, what's your view of predestination? Uh, are you a five-point Calvinist? Uh, and you see that coming out of the Reformed Church. I am not a five-point Calvinist. I am probably a 4.45 Calvinist. Uh, and effectively, uh, I believe much of what's in Calvinist theology, but I do not believe in predestination. Meaning what? I do not believe that God predetermined from the foundation of the world who would be saved and who would be lost. Okay? I cannot believe that. I cannot believe that in light of John 3, 16. Whosoever, whosoever. Uh, and so if, if God has, has allowed whosoever believeth on the Lord Jesus Christ shall, shall be saved, if that's the question, whosoever does not indicate that there is a limitation. It is open to everybody. So now I have to, to uh, contextually put this verse together, understanding that what, what, what is going on here? Well, what is going on here is what is referred to here as foreknowledge, foreknowledge. And so you see that in verse 29 of Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, and you can underline in, that, in your Bible, he also predestined. Foreknowledge comes first. What does that mean? It means that God sits outside of time. It's as if God looks down at the world and he sees the beginning of time and the end of time as one continuous parade. He sees it all at the same time. That is foreknowledge. It's as hard for us to get our puny carnal minds around this, but this is the nature of what God is about. And so God now, in his foreknowledge, as he's about to create you, as he holds you in his hand and is about to create you uh, and effectively put you out into the universe uh, to become a human being in this world, he, in his foreknowledge, knows what you will do with Jesus Christ. He sees those of us who will accept Christ, and he sees those of us who will not accept Christ. And to the extent that he sees those of us who will accept Christ, he predetermines the good works that he would have you do. Extraordinary. That the God of the universe would effectively lay out uh, a criteria of work specifically for you because of your talents and your gifts, even before you came into being as a human a being. It's extraordinary. Uh, and so wh why does he tell us this? Why is this important? Uh, well, he does this prepared beforehand. He does this because clearly if God uh, planned such good works beforehand, I have no grounds to boast. Very simply, I can't boast. And so if I can't boast, everything that I do has to be designed by God to serve him. Uh, and this is why Christians are in an entirely different category than every other kind of person in this world that is attempting to do good. Everything that we do is designed by God even before we were created. He has destined us 
for this purpose. That is why I've often said to you that when we get to heaven, when, we're, when we are saved and we will get there, God will say to you, you know, I had a lot of plans for your life. I had a lot of plans. And what does that mean? It means before you were born, God has predestined the very works that you should have. Uh, and, and so what does this mean? Well, it means that, that sometimes I hear some false teachers saying to people, uh, you, you know, I have big dreams for you. You can dream big. There's all kinds of big things that you can do in this world. That is a false theology. Listen, we don't dream big. We bow before the throne of God and ask him to pour his will into our heart and to, to whatever extent he wants from us. If it's not some big plan, if it's a smaller plan, then we do, we bow to God and we let him do that. Uh, and I had to learn this myself uh, in terms of uh, being used by God because when I first determined that God had called me into ministry, I had some grandiose ideas of what I thought he would have me do. Uh, until it became very clear, no, John, no. You're going to open your house to start with five people around your kitchen table in a Bible study. That's my plan for you. And I will see if you obediently serve me. You see, that's how God is. That's how God is. Instead, we as human beings puff ourselves up. Uh, and so we should never engage in any work without first asking God if this is his will, if this is how he wants us uh, to walk in his way. And so walking, walking in these good works, which God has prepared for us, is a lifelong process. So once we are saved, uh, the direction of our lives should be to walk on the path of obedience to God in everything we do. Uh, also, walking uh, in obedience does not mean that we dabble with them in our spare time. We're not dabblers. We become fully committed and conformed to God in every possible way. Nothing else that we do in our life is as is important as serving God in the call of our life on good works. He becomes, he becomes the very bent of our life uh, every day in every situation. There is no division for us as Christians between the sacred and the secular life, whether you're at work or you're at home, whether you're at church or you're outside on the street, whether you're in the golf course or, or you're in the shopping center. Every aspect of your life demands that you serve God, that you walk with God, that you are sensitive to God. And this applies similarly to the entire church. Everything that we do in this church is to glorify God. And so the application of this message is that if God has saved you uh, by his grace, he has saved you for a life of good works. If you are not engaging in these good works, uh, you need to confess your self-centered lifestyle to the Lord and ask him how you want, him, want to serve him. Listen, uh, we understand this, that it's so easy for us to become self-centered and introspective about our lives. But God says, that's not the way I've created you. I've designed you that you are to serve me, and I need you to serve me. I need you to be my hands and feet. And so thus, genuine salvation, real salvation, in, involves God creating something new. It inevitably results in a life of good works because God ordained it by his foreknowledge. He sees the beginning of time and the end of time all at the same time. 
And so the good works that we walk in should be done also in a corporate context, meaning within the uh, operational confines of the church as well. Scripture teaches us that when God saves us, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into one body of Christ. And I'd like you to turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. That becomes a critical understanding of who we are as Christians. We are one body. God does not see us as black or white or Jew and Gentile. God doesn't work that way. When we come to Christ, we are baptized into the body of Christ as one identity, one being, serving Christ, Christians giving God our identity. And so we become effectively individual members of the body of Christ. Uh, And so we must work in coordination with the body of Christ in cooperation with other members of the body. Uh, Christ is the head. And so we recognize Christ as the head. And yet the church, uh, who is the bride of Christ, becomes the servant also of Christ. And what does this mean? It means that when we come together in church, as we have, as we have these various ministry opportunities, we bow together to work together. What a privilege it is for us to have a church where we have a prison fellowship uh, or, or, or a, a hospital visitation committee or, or a, a group of people that put out food so that when people come to this church, they're given love and, and affirmation. And then we have a film ministry. There's so many ministries in this church. It's a prayer shawl ministry, a prayer ministry. And all of that fits together within the body of Christ. We work together. None of us says, oh, I'm more important than anybody else. Nobody. Nobody, we bow as we work together with Jesus Christ. And so if you've been saved, the focus of your life should be clearly, Lord, what will you have me do? Uh, And this is exactly what Paul said when he was struck down on the Damascus Road. Turn to Acts 22, if you would. Acts 22. And this is Paul speaking about it, which I think is is so profound. Acts 22, verse 10. And Paul's talking about what happens to him uh, at uh, when he was struck down on the road to, to Damascus. And so we'll, look at, we'll start with verse 6. About noon as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of who was speaking to me. Verse 10, what shall I do, Lord, I asked. There it is. What shall I do, Lord? That's the, that's the command. What shall I do? Uh, and so you see it here that, that it's very simple. What shall I do? Well, what shall I do? Get up. And go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that has appointed for you to do. God had planned it beforehand, but Paul had to learn to walk in it. And he did walk in it for the rest of his life. He bowed and before the throne of God 
and asked God to open the doors as to where, where God wanted him to go and to shut the doors that he didn't want him to go. And as a result of that, Paul wound up spending two years uh, working his way to come to Rome and be imprisoned in Rome uh, because it was God's intention that Paul speak to the Roman church, that he write the book of Romans. And it took about two years for that to take place. And part of that voyage involved a ship. And on that ship with several hundred other people, that ship was shipwrecked. Uh, even as he was working his way towards Rome. And as a result of that shipwreck, people were saved. Roman soldiers were saved. And Paul then wound up being in handcuffs and in chains in Rome for a period of time. And can you imagine what it had to be like to be chained to this great missionary evangelist? And you're a Roman centurion and you're chained to him. And I can just imagine that all day long, that's all he talked about was Jesus Christ. And, and we know from other theologians that the Roman church grew. Why did it grow? Because there it was, the man who was called by God to be the hands and feet of God was there in prison exactly where God had determined the call of his life. And so listen now, this becomes important. We're in difficult times. People are hurting. People need help. Older people especially. And so we're in a position here, church, to reach out to these people. Uh, and so who knows who needs somebody to go and shop for them or who needs somebody to give attention to them, even within the confines of the laws that we have. There's so many needs. Look, we can't go to the hospitals right now, but we can call people in the hospitals, but we can continue our prayer list and do all those things that we need to do. God has called you. Remember this, if your life has not given you the evidence of these good works, then you need to get on your knees and ask God to speak to you, to conform you to his will so that we walk every single day in the works that he has predestined from us from the time that we are created. Church, this is an important message. I ask you that you consider it and share it with others. Let's bow before God as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the words that you have given us today. Lord, I ask you that these words resonate in our heart, that they, they help us to grow closer to you, that we have an understanding, Lord, of what you want from us every day of our lives as we commit our lives to be your servants, your hands, your feet, Lord. Help us to become more passionate, especially so during this period of time. Protect our people, Lord. Put a wall of, of protection around them uh, as we move forward to serve you in every way. And Lord Jesus, we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We love you, church.